You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, great to see you this morning. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 15. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to jump right in and get to work. Um, Luke chapter 15. Okay, verse 11. Um, if you're following along, Luke 15, verse 11, Jesus speaking here, and this is um, how he starts off one of his most famous parables, the parable um, commonly kind of uh, called the parable of the prodigal son, and starts off like this, verse 11, and he, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. I want to just make sure that you've got the context just firmly, like it, it is firmly before you. So go back to the very first uh, verse of the chapter, Luke 15, verse 1 and 2. Now, I want to read these with you one more time just to make sure that when we get to verse 11, we're thinking rightly. Okay, so verse um, 1, Luke 15 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the, the, the whole content of Luke 15 is spoken to these, these two sets of people. So you've got group 1 that is your tax collectors and sinners. Um, they are the marginally ostracized, socially ostracized. They, they are that crew of people that they have broken the rules for so long that they really feel like they are beyond the grace of God. That the grace of God does not reach far enough to get to them. They're the group of people that really feel like freedom, ultimate satisfaction and significance, visibility and value, ultimate freedom, the, the deep aches of your heart, that ultimate freedom can be found in breaking the rules and living an immoral life. That, that's group one. And then you have group two, and this is the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, um, I, I, I want to be fair to the Pharisees and scribes just for a second, because I think if I came up to you and called you a Pharisee, that you would instantly have like a clue that wasn't a compliment. He, he, he was not, that was not good, right? And so I want to be fair to them, because if, um, if you were to go back in 21st or in first century world and look at a Pharisee, you would not think bad guy. You would think a great guy. You would think a moral guy. You would think a good dad, a good mom, a good husband, a good wife. You, you would have those thoughts. They're, they're moral people. They have great behavior, right? Th- this would be a Pharisee for you. They're going to be your hardworking, uh, hard workers. If you were to go hire someone, you would want them. They're going to be hardworking. They're going to be honest. They're going to be all of that. If you put that in the 21st century kind of language in our context, they would be kind of the, the moral majority of our country. They would be the people kind of voting Republican now, hating the debt ceiling. Um, they're the people that, um, I mean, they're the hard workers. They're in that middle-class job just working. This is who we're talking about. They're good people, right? They're good people. But here's their problem. For, for them, their morality, like for, for them, ultimate freedom was their way, uh, or morality was their way to kind of gain ultimate freedom. Freedom for them meant keeping the rules. Now, as you read through this, uh, I think it's really important when you get to verse 11 to know that th- these two sons that we're, we're kind of about to look at here, your elder brother and your younger brother, that they represent these two groups of people, that your younger brother represents the law-breaking tax collectors and sinners. Your, your older brother, he represents the Pharisees and the scribes, the rule keepers. So that's who we're talking about here, right? Th- this is the point. And, and, and by the way, if we read this, Jesus is really clear in making sure this point is driven home, that both of them are lost. Although their running looks different, one runs by breaking the rules, the other runs by keeping the rules, they are both lost. One is a lost law breaker, one is a lost law keeper. Okay, now look at verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, okay, so we've got our, our younger brother here representing the tax collectors and 
sinners. The younger brother said to his father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. I mean, essentially he's saying, give me, give me the stuff and, and get away from me. I don't care about you. I, I don't want to be near you. I want to get to the far country as quick as I can. Okay. Th- this is the tax collectors and sinners. He's breaking the rules, right? Freedom is found by breaking the rules. And so as you see this play out, what, what happens over the, the course of the next five, six, seven verses, you see a storied presentation of Romans six twenty six. The wages of sin is death. You, you see this man's life come to just absolute ruin. You see him wreck his life through his rebellion. Uh, by the time you get to verse 13, you see over a span of nine words that he's been reckless in, in his, with his money and he has squandered it all. You get to verse 14 and uh, the, the, the grace of God's coming after our man. The grace of God comes in this unlikely form of a famine of all things. That, that after he squandered his property, um, for the first time, he starts to feel a need in his life, right? Verse, verse 15, um, in response to that need, he doesn't look to God yet. He doesn't look back to the Father. He goes and hires himself out to a Gentile. Um, and not only is he working for a Gentile, but he is feeding pigs for a Gentile. And for a Jewish man, this was beyond belief. If, if the Pharisees, as they listen to Jesus tell this story, this is the point where the Pharisees would be saying, this man is beyond all hope. Wherever the line is of like being beyond grace, this guy just crossed it. There is no hope for reconciliation, for rescue, for redemption. He is beyond all of that, right? So this is what's playing out here. And then in verse 17, a huge turning point in the story, the grace of God comes, catches this guy, wrestles this guy down, and turns his heart. He's repentant before God and his father, and he is on the journey home. And then this sets up verse 20. Kind of the primary point of the parable comes in verse 20. As we see the, the father's response to his wayward son, we see the father... We, we see the father lavish and just pour out his grace and forgiveness on this wayward guy, on this prodigal. And, and here, by the time you get to this climactic verse in, in verse 20, and by the way, when you read verse 20, you need to have like the smell of a prodigal in a pigsty in your nostrils, right? It, it's in that smell that you read words in verse 20, like compassion, like run, like embrace, like kiss. This is a picture of the father's forgiveness for this guy. So this sets up this primary point of the, of, of the parable, that this grace and forgiveness is extended from the father to his son. And, and as you reach this climactic point in the chapter, you start to see that in actuality, it's not the younger son who is the prodigal. It's not the younger son who is reckless with, with, with his riches. It's not the younger son who is prodigal with what's precious. It's actually, listen to this, it's actually the father who's the prodigal. It's actually the father who is reckless with what, with his riches. It's actually the father who is reckless with his grace. It's actually the father who lavishes his grace upon this guy who, who excessively, this is what prodigal means. He's a spin, a spendthrift. He's excessive and extreme and extravagant in dishing out his grace to this young man that didn't deserve it, could never earn it, has done everything he could to disqualify himself from it. And listen, this story is bigger than a man and his son. This is the story about how God has lavished his grace on all of his wayward sons and daughters who are repentant. If you're a Christian, this is your story. This is your story. See, it's at this point of the story where we almost just have to stop and say, for all the rebellious, just let me remind you, this is Jesus just screaming this. You are not beyond the grace of God. As far as your sin reaches, God's grace reaches further. That you are not beyond the grace of God. Tax collectors, sinners, the rebellious, the openly and flamboyant sinful, you're not beyond grace. Because of the work of Jesus, we can be confident that, that when we repent and we return to God, that we're going to find a God that's prodigal with his grace, that's welcoming, 
right? To, to all that want to return. See, this is the point of the parable. Now, okay, as you get to chapter, you know, verse 20, 21, right and through there, I, I look at that and as I'm reading it, this is what I'm thinking. That would be a great and like a fitting conclusion to the chapter. That would be a perfect place to, to draw like the end of chapter 15 and let's get to chapter 16, right? You've got the, the, the crescendo of the chapter that the son returns. He's repentant. The, the father welcomes him in. Even more than that, the father is rejoicing. He celebrates. He kills the fattened calf and celebrates with the son's um, redemption. You, you've got a perfect end to the story if you're only, like, your crowd is full of only tax collectors and sinners. But if your crowd also has Pharisees in it, you need one more scene and eight more verses. And here's what we're about to see displayed before us. You're about to get a front row seat of what it looks like to run from God in your morality, to run from God in your good behavior, to run from God with self-righteousness. Okay, so, so this is what we're about to see, running from God in your self-righteousness. Okay, now let me just prime the pump to make sure before we read this text that, that you're ready for it. Almost everyone thinks, when they think sin, almost everyone thinks in terms like this. Sin is breaking a set of rules. So sin always equals bad behavior. Okay, this is what everyone thinks of when they think sin. Sin equals breaking rules. Sin equals bad behavior. But here's what we're about to see in this text. That sin is bigger than breaking rules. Sin is bigger than bad behavior. Sin is... Sin also covers everything you do right for the wrong reasons. Do we have a picture of sin being that? Of actually keeping the rules but keeping them for the wrong reasons? That that's sin as well? See, what we're about to see is this self-righteous heart of this elder brother who's actually banking on his morality, his goodness to earn him favor before God. Okay, so let's, let's read it here. Verse 25. Starts like this. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Verse 27. And, and the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. 28. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, your, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is, this is a front row view of self-righteousness. So let, let me try to define self-righteousness for you here. Here's what self-righteousness is. Self-righteousness is relating to God based on your performance for God. Self-righteousness is relating to God based on your performance for God. Okay, so so maybe if you want to think um, like first cousins of self-righteousness are, are words like legalism and moralism. Okay, th- those are first cousins. Um, self-righteousness is believing that we can earn God's blessing through our behavior. It's believing that we can earn God's grace through our good living. It- it's believing that, that we can be right with God based upon our personal righteousness, what we bring to the table. It's believing that, that God's mercy is dependent upon our morality. Okay, this, this is self-righteousness. It's looking to God. It's, it's relating to God based on your performance for God, to God. 
Okay, now, now let me just clearly set the gospel aside this so that you see what this is in relationship to the gospel. It is anti-gospel. The gospel is the exact opposite of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness says, I, I obey, therefore I get the blessings of God. The gospel says, you have never obeyed. Christ obeyed for you, and because Christ obeyed for you, you get the blessings of God, right? So, so the gospel starts like this, that you have no righteousness of your own. That, that you, your bad works and your good works, you have no righteousness before God. In Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah, God through Isaiah says it this way. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. Okay, now I, I had to struggle through all week. Like, how do I even describe what a filthy rag is? It's almost embarrassing for everyone in the room. Um, but l- let me just take a shot. It's a menstrual cloth. Okay, that's all the explanation you get right there. I'm done. Okay, so, so now here's what he's saying. He is saying, not only your law breaking, not only the bad things that you do, but your righteousness, the good things that you do for wrong reasons, your best things that you do, all of that is like, when we try to, to, to relate to God based on that, it's like wrapping up a present that has menstrual cloths inside of it and saying, God, now we're okay, right? This is your work before God. Your bad stuff and your best stuff. This is your work before him. See, this is what Paul means in Romans 3 where he says um, that there's none righteous, no, not one. He's saying that there is not a person that can stand before God on his own. Good deeds and bad deeds, you have no righteousness before God. And here is the great news of the gospel, that Jesus is our righteousness. That this is the good news of the gospel, that he came and lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life, died an undeserving death in place of your deserved death. He, He was buried, he rose again. And for those who respond in faith to Jesus, he actually becomes your righteousness. Your filthy rags are are torn off of you and you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. That's the gospel. See, to get the gospel though, you've got to start seeing that I have no righteousness of my own. I've got nothing to offer in this thing. Okay, so, so this is righteousness or self-righteousness defined. Now, let, let me display it for you in this text. Self-righteousness displayed. Now, our elder brother is the representative Pharisee, and they are the group of people in the New Testament that, that are just your illustrative, I mean, they are the prime example of what it looks like to relate to God based on your performance for God. So look at verse 29 and, and watch how the, 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 the elder brother, his his relationship with the father is totally built on his performance for the father. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. Look at what I've done for you. I've never disobeyed you. I've kept all of your commandments. Everything you've asked, I've done. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Okay, now, now it's, it's huge that you see what just happened right there. In his economy, the elder brother's economy works like this. I perform well, so now God, you're in my debt and you need to give me. See, it's I performed well, so I'm the one that deserved the fattened calf, not the, the elder, or not the younger brother. See, it's I performed, so now God is in my debt to do what I want God to do. Do you see this? He's relating to the Father completely based on his performance for the Father. Now, I wish I could say that that's just a first century deal. We're over that now. We've evolved since then. I wish I could say all that, right? But listen, our culture, especially our culture, is drenched with self-righteousness. And this is people outside the church and inside the church 
culture. Let's just think outside the church. If you were to go um, grab 10 people and have them over for dinner and you were to ask them, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? Almost without exception in our culture, you get a yes to that. And then if you ask the follow-up question of why is it that you believe that? Almost without exception, you get some sort of a response that boils down to this. My good deeds sort of outweigh my bad deeds. I'm not really that bad of a guy. I mean, th- this is the response you get. Now, stop and think about what just happened right there. That is relating to God based on your performance for God. See, see, in their economy, it's not I obey or I'm a pretty good guy. I perform and I get a fattened calf. It's I obey. And, and because I obeyed, now I get heaven. Now, now I get the blessing of God. You see this? This is pervasive in our culture. It is like this little undercurrent that just sits below our culture and over our culture. And listen, it is not just a cultural thing. It's not just an out there thing. It's an in here thing. Churches are drenched with people who relate to God based on their performance for God. Drenched with it. Okay, listen to these words from Jerry Bridges as he describes this. He says it this way. My observation of Christendom is that, the, is that most of us tend to base our personal relationship with God on our performance instead of on his grace. If we've performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. If we haven't done so well, our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live by works rather than by grace. We are saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. We give lip service to the attitude of the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But listen to this. But our unspoken motto is, God helps those who help themselves. That is anti-gospel. Are we seeing that? God helps those who help themselves is the exact opposite message of the gospel. The gospel is God helps those who know they cannot help themselves. That's the gospel. God helps those who who know that they have no ability to do anything for themselves. That's who God helps. Are we seeing that? Okay, now, um, we'll ask different questions in a church, like in this crowd. I'm not going to ask the question, do you think you're going to go to heaven? What do you think? Let me ask it this way. We'll, We'll say our business guys in the room. Do you think that if you are honest at work, I mean, you you do your work with integrity. You do the right thing to, to people. Do you think God is more likely to bless your business because you behave well at work? You, you do the right thing? And, and you know, I think if we were to be honest here, I think almost everyone in the room would answer yes to that question. Maybe we could go this way with it. Um, we'll use um, Bible reading. Let's say you got up and read your Bible this morning, which I'm a proponent of. I hope you did. Do you think that because you read your Bible this morning that God is more likely, like his favor, his smile is more likely to be directed towards you? Almost without exception, church people say yes to that. Or, or we'll just use the, the illustration of finances. Do you believe TV, uh, TV preachers, right? When they say, hey, let's get crazy in the way we give. You give 10%, guarantee you, God's going to give you a return of 30% to you and a plane to me, right? That's in the fine print down below, right? <laughs> okay, now, okay, now check this out though. Almost without exception, Christians believe each of those things. People who fill churches, flood churches, believe those things. It's anti-gospel. Gospel is you, you do not have anything to relate to Jesus on or to God on. All you have is the work of Jesus to relate to God on. Do you see that? 
See, when you start, when you start equating, when you start living in the economy of my good behavior gets me the blessings of God, you are instantly in self-righteous territory. When you start living with the awareness of I have no good behavior. As one preacher said, my best works are shot through with sin. When you start living under the awareness of I have no good behavior and the only way I can relate to God is based on Jesus, his perfect behavior for me, then you're starting to believe the gospel. Then you're a Christian. We'll say it that way. And listen, Martin Luther called like this whole idea of self-righteousness, he called it the default mode of the human heart. That this is our natural tendency. If you go back to to Genesis 3, when, when Adam sinned against God, he lost his righteousness before God. And his instant response to losing that righteousness was to start working for his own, to try to regain it. And just like Adam, we are born without righteousness before God. And our natural default reflex of the heart is to start trying to regain it through our good works. It's the default mode. See, this is pervasive. This problem is everywhere, outside the church and inside the church. Okay, now let me, um, one more thing here before we keep moving. Let, let me try to give you the danger of self-righteousness. How dangerous self-righteousness can be. I, I like what Jerry Bridges call us, uh, calls self-righteousness. He calls it the, the primary and the premier enemy of the gospel. Okay, so now think about this story and how it plays out. Okay, so you've got two brothers. You've got an elder and an, uh, you've got an elder brother and this younger brother. And if I were to ask you the question, as the story starts, who, who's in the most danger? Or, or, or just in the story, who, who's in the most dangerous and desperate position? See, when the story begins, you would say, well, of course, that, that's really obvious. The, the younger brother is by far in the, in the more serious condition. He's in the far country. He is in deep trouble, right? I mean, he, I mean, to put it into to 21st century language, when you read pigsty, I mean, that would be the equivalent of a Mexican prison right there, right? He, he, is, in, he is in terrible shape here. But, but by, by the time the story closes, it becomes real obvious that the younger brother is not in the most dangerous position, that actually the elder brother is in the most dangerous position. And here's why. Now listen to this. Here's why the elder brother, his good behavior, his morality is actually more dangerous than, than the younger brother's disobedience. Now think about this. It's because the elder brother or the, the younger brother, he, he's in the Mexican prison. He's killed a couple of people. He's wrecked his finances, wrecked his family. He has ruined his life. And listen, it, it makes perfect sense to him that he has no righteousness before God. That is easy for him to see. I mean, what righteousness is there, right? But, but here's what's so hard for our elder brother is he's the, he's the moral living guy. He is the good behaving person. He's kept the commands. He's come to church. He's got the Bible in hand. He's quoting scripture everywhere. He's that guy. And it is almost impossible for him to see that his good deeds are just as filthy before God as his younger brother's bad deeds. You know, there's one... There's one requirement to receive grace. You know what that is? You've got to know that you need it. And his good behavior was actually the thing keeping him from receiving grace. Uh, Listen to Tim Keller describe this. He says it this way. The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness. Listen to this. 
He's losing the father's love because of his goodness, because of his morality, because of his good behavior. It's not that, that his sin, it's, it's not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. Are, are we seeing that? Isn't this ironic? That he is the good behaving guy in the story and he's actually in the most desperate and the most dangerous and possibly the most eternally damning position. I love how John Gerstner, a theologian, he says it this way. It's not this, this guy, the elder brother's sins that, that keeps him like out of the feast. It's not that. It's not his flamboyant, open rebellion. It's actually his damnable good works that keeps him from it. Now, isn't that ironic that good works can be damnable? Listen to J.C. Riles. He describes how dangerous self-righteousness is. He says it this way, pastor of a few centuries ago, of all the mischievous delusions that keep men out of heaven, of all the soul-destroying snares that Satan employs to oppose Christ's gospel, there is none we find so dangerous, none so successful as self-righteousness. He's saying that the main reason people... Don't, don't go to heaven, avoid Jesus, miss, miss eternity with God. The main reason is their self-righteousness. Maybe you could think of it this way, and I think this will be shocking um, for a lot of us to hear. But there will be good, more good behaving, self-righteous people in hell than there will be pimps and prostitutes. That there will be as many careful parents in hell as there will, will be careless parents in hell. There will be as many hardworking, obedient people in hell as there will be lazy and disobedient people. There will be as many alcohol-absent people in hell than there will be alcohol addicts. There will be as many moral people in hell as there will be murderers in hell. And do you know why that is? Because for the moral person, it is so hard to see that they actually need a savior. See, for the murderer, they get that. Of course I do. See, the, the murderer knows he's got no, no righteousness to, to work on between he and God. But the moral person, see, it's, it's so easy to start believing that, no, you know, my, these good works, these good behaviors, I mean, th- these are earning me something here. Isn't that ironic that good behavior may be the most eternally dangerous and damning thing a person could do? Okay, so if self-righteousness is this hard to see, I want to give you, um, I want to kind of finish here by giving you some signs of self-righteousness. So, some, some signals in this story when you look at the elder brother that you start to instantly see, wow, he is relating to God based on his performance for God. Here's the first one. In, in self-righteous people, there is an undercurrent of anger. In self-righteous people, there's an undercurrent of anger. Look at verse 28. But he refused, like he was angry and he refused to go in. I mean, he, he was angry, right? You, you see the undercurrent here. Okay, now follow the logic. Here's what's happening in this story. See, in his economy, good works, his performance means the father is in debt to him. The father now owes him. The father now has to pay him. And when life did not go the way he wanted, he became instantly angry at God. God, God, I look at what I've done for you. In the words of the Pharisee, look, look at this good behavior. I, I've slaved with you for years, and this is what you give me? It's this undercurrent of anger. Now, now let's just bring this real close to home. 
Um, a couple of years ago, I was uh, sitting across um, a chair, or actually not across a chair, but in a chair next to a lady. And uh, man, she was heartbroken. She was absolutely beside herself. She had a, uh, a, her son that had gone berserk. He was in the far country. He was in the pigsty. I mean, he, he was off, off the ledge. And I'll never forget this comment she made to me. She said, uh, I have come to church all of my life. I have raised him in the church. I know my Bible. I read my Bible. I give. I serve. And this is what God does to me. How many of us have been in that position? You see what's happening here? It's, God, do you see what I've done for you? Just like the elder brother. Do you see how I've served you? Do you see what I've, you see what I've sacrificed for you? And this is what you give me? See, in the self-righteous, there's always an undercurrent of anger. Either we are mad at God because we deserve something, we feel like we deserve something and he's not giving it to us. Or listen to this, we are mad at ourselves. we're depressed at ourselves because we haven't deserved the blessing of God. But we're always mad at someone when life doesn't go out and it doesn't turn out right. See, for the, for the gospeled Christian, for the Christian who's relating to, to God based on Christ's performance for him, here's what he knows. That, that when, when life does not go well, and that's coming for all of us, when life does not go well, that is not punishment from God. That's not wrath from God. Jesus absorbed it all for us. That is actually a grace from God. That regardless of how bad life gets for us, we are always getting from God better than we deserve. See, that's a gospel Christian. There's this undercurrent of anger in the self-righteous. Here's the second one. There is more desire for God's gifts than for God. See, in the self-righteous, there, there's a bigger desire for the things of God than, than for God. So watch how this plays out in the story. If I were to ask you, what is it that the younger brother wanted? Like, what was he going after? I think it's, it's pretty obvious. You see it right in verse 12. Uh, give, give me the stuff. He, he wanted the father's stuff more, much more than he wanted the father. But if I were to ask you the question, what did the elder brother want? In all of his good behavior, in all of his right living, in all of his morality, what was he going after? L- look at verse 29. L- watch his response here. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. You, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You know what he wanted? The exact same thing. He wants the father's stuff too. But rather go, than going about it in a straightforward, shameful way, he goes about it in a, in a very subtle and shameful way. See, he's actually using his morality to try to get the things from God. But here's the truth for both of the brothers. They cared nothing about the father. One was in the far country. The other's heart was in the far country. They cared nothing about the father. All they wanted was his stuff. See, th- this is what self-righteous people want. They don't want God. They, they want God's stuff. Can I tell you what a Christian is? What a Christian is. A Christian is someone who wants God. A Christian is someone who has trusted Jesus for their righteousness and treasures Jesus. That, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone with deep longings for God, deep affections for God. A deep desire for God. That's what a Christian is. A lot of times I'll answer it with Psalms 42.1. What is a Christian? Psalms 42.1. As, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after God. A Christian is a person who wants God like a, a guy dying from thirst in the desert wants a drink of water. That's a Christian. See, it's not just agreeing with some facts about Jesus and what Jesus, it, it's actually treasuring God, wanting God, longing for God. 
See, you can be a lot of things and want God's gifts, but if you don't want God, you are not a Christian. Now, listen to this um, quote by a guy named John Piper. He deals with this issue. That This ought to pierce some of us in the room. Listen to what he says. The critical question for our generation and for every generation, for us in the room right now, critical question for us is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and, and heaven with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, listen to this last statement. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And if your answer is yes to that, you can be a lot of things, but a Christian just isn't one of them. A Christian, somebody saved by grace, wants and longs and loves and desires God. Self-righteous people don't. They desire his gifts. Thirdly, there's a judgmental spirit toward other people. There's a judgmental spirit. Um, Self-righteousness makes it impossible to see our own sin, and it magnifies it in the in the lives of others. This is what self-righteousness does. As, as you kind of watch the, the story of this product or this elder brother, um, he, he has a total inability to see that that same rebellious heart that caused his younger brother to, to shamefully humiliate his father is the same rebellious heart in him that is now causing, as the story closes, causing him to shame and humiliate the father. But he can't see that. He's too self-righteous, right? He, he cannot see the sin inside of him. And look at what it says in verse 30. I think this is really revealing. He, it starts out like this. But when this son of yours came... Now, I think that's interesting. He's no longer a brother. It's this son of yours. See, he's no longer someone that like he grew up. It's this son of yours, that guy. You see that already, this critical judgmental spirit? He says, but when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes and you killed the fattened calf for him, you just see this critical and judgmental spirit seep out of this guy. Okay, now now I want you to think about how self-righteousness produces that. See, whatever you're looking to for your righteousness before God, that is what you will begin to measure other people by. So whatever it is that you look to for your righteousness, your performance, whatever your performance is based on for your relationship to God, whatever that is, that becomes your thing by which you become superior to other people. So, so your thing may be good parenting. See, I mean, it's, it's the careless parents who, who are just terrible. It's the careless parents that you can't stand, right? See, your, your thing may be, you may be a recycler. You, you may be the, the go green person. I mean, you may drive the, the Prius with the electric. You may hate people with, with Suburbans. You may recycle everything, right? And, and see, your deal is your superiority comes from, your judgmentalness comes from. Now, now it's those people who drive the Suburbans. What are they thinking? Get a lot, right? I mean, it, it's the people who, um, th- their deal is managing their finances, right? So, so, so our, our relationship to God is based on, look, look at how I've made money. Look at how I can manage this thing. Look at how I can turn a dollar into 10 just like that. And, and your critical spirit then becomes those people who can't do that. See, whatever you're basing your relationship with God on, it then becomes the thing you use to gain superiority over others. This is why he looks at his brother and says, that, that son of yours that would be disobedient, that would be that disloyal, See, his, his whole righteousness before God was based on his morality, his good behavior. And he could not stand it when his younger, younger brother rebelled. Could not stand it. He lost brotherhood status when he rebelled, right? 
And, and by the way, I think you get a glimpse real quickly of probably why it is in the first place that the younger brother left, don't you? Who, who wants to be around that guy? I don't want to. You don't want to, right? No one wants to be around self-righteous people. Now listen to this. Is there any wonder why so few younger brothers show up in the church? Any reason? Could it be that they don't want to be around self-righteous people either? Maybe that's, I mean, maybe we should, should take a second and allow that to seep in. Last one. We're about to wrap it up here. In a self-righteous person, there's, there's a lot of talk about God, but there's little talk to God. There's a lot of talk about God, right? I mean, we're carrying the Bible under our hand. We're quoting scripture. We're coming to, we're doing all that, but there's little talk to God. Now, I think it's interesting. I think this is how the story should have ended, right? I think when, when the the elder brother comes from the field, this should have been the response of the elder brother had his heart been right toward his father. When, When he came, you know, back from the field and he realizes, it says he heard music and he heard dancing. Now, I don't know what sort of dancing you can hear from the field, but this is an epic party going on. Wouldn't we agree? Okay, so so he hears music and he hears dancing, and this should be his response. He should bust through the door, find the Father, figure out what we're celebrating here. Like, why is it that you're so happy? Because I want to be happy with you. Why is it that we would kill the fattened calf? Because I want to celebrate with you. See, that should be the heart of the elder brother, right? But isn't it ironic that when he comes to the house, he comes in from the field, that he grabs a servant as his go-between? There's not a communication with the father. There's a lot of talk about the father, but there's not communication to the father. There's communication to a servant to the father. So so maybe you could apply this just through prayer. The prayer life of self-righteous people is always stale. Always stale. And you know why? Okay, maybe if you think about prayer in the acronym of ACTS, where A would be, like, there's four types of of praying that we can do with God. There's adoration, that would be the A, where we um, praise God for who he is and what he is and what he has done, right? This is adoration, where we're enjoying the presence of God. There's confession, where we're pouring out our lack of righteousness before God. And there's thanksgiving, where we get to celebrate and we get to thank God for the righteousness of Christ over us. And then there's this S, there's supplication, where we ask God to do things for us. See, for the self-righteous, their prayer life is dominated by asking things from God. That their prayer life, that's all their prayer life consists of. God, I need that and I need this. See, prayer for them has become their new performance thing that they can put God in their debt so now God will bless them and give them things. Where the, where the prayer life for a Christian is not so you can get things from God, but so you can enjoy God. So you can sit in the presence of God, delight in God. You see the difference there? If there's more talk about God than there actually is talk to God. Listen to these, uh, these 10 questions from Jerry Bridges as he tries to expose self-righteousness in us. Just, just think about this. If, if you're starting to answer yes to these questions and, and what it might say about self-righteousness, he, he gives an, these questions as exposing kind of a set of, of questions here. He, number one, he says it this way. Do you tend to live by a list of do's and don't? Number two, Is it difficult for you to respect those whose standards aren't as high as yours? Three, do you assume that practicing spiritual discipline should result in God's blessing? Four, do you feel, uh, do you feel you're better than most other people? Five, has it been a long time since you identified a sin and repented of it? Six, do you, do you resent it when others point out your spiritual blind spots? Seven, 
Do you readily recognize the sins of others, but not your own? Eight, do you have the sense that God owes you a good life, a comfortable life? Kids who who never get out of line, a a good bank account. Nine, do you get angry when difficulties and sufferings come into your life? Ten, do you seldom think of the cross? Now listen to how Jerry Bridges finishes this. He says, if you found yourself answering yes to at least half of these questions, it's likely you're living under a stronghold of self-righteousness toward God. You need to see this for what it really is, a a hideous enemy disguised as a satisfying glory. It will let you down and leave you hanging. Its satisfaction is 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 as short-lived as an ice cream cube in the blazing sun. Its glory has all the appeal of a well-dressed corpse. And at the end of the day, this fact remains. No amount of personal performance will ever gain the approval of a holy God. Okay, we're done with with this last uh, connection. Um, The the father and his response to self-righteousness, right? How how God deals with self-righteousness. As I've read this over the last few months, I I think my... The, the, the most encouraging and for me the, the best picture of grace in the entire chapter comes in the last eight verses. My, my favorite part of the chapter is now watching the father. It says he goes out of the house and he entreats the self-righteous, smug, judgmental older brother. See, see we get this picture. And by the way, I would respond so much differently, wouldn't you? See, here's how I would respond to his self-righteousness if I was the father. I think we've got this outhouse for you right over there. Feel free to take all your friends. There's plenty of food for you in there. Go and sell. That would be my response. But but we see the father going out and entreating. That we, we see the father that he runs not just to prodigals, but he runs to Pharisees. We see that he doesn't just entreat that the younger son to come in. He also entreats the elder son, the self-righteous, rule-keeping, lost elder son. I think it's the best picture of grace in, in the story. That he would actually get down on his knee and look at a self-righteous person and say, do you see your need for grace? That you have no righteousness to offer. That you are desperately in need of what the younger brother just received. Can you see that? He entreats him. And make no mistake about it, I think a lot of people view kind of this last part, these last eight verses as, well, I mean, the older brother just need kind of an attitude adjustment. He didn't need an attitude adjustment. He needed to be saved. See, his self-righteousness kept him from rescue, kept him from redemption. What this guy needs is the pursuing grace of God to reconcile him with the Father. Do you see that? I mean, this is my prayer for us in the room. Elder brothers, People who are self-righteous, relating to God based on their performance, that this would be a day that you lay down all of your righteousness, your good things that you have done and your bad things, and that you humbly submit your life to Jesus. See, at this moment, he will no longer just be a person to follow. He'll no longer just be like a moral man to imitate, but he'll actually be a satisfying savior to you. So I pray it happens for us, amen? Let's pray. For all of us in the room, we're really left in, in two positions in here. It's really not a question of if we're self-righteous. Um, because it is the default of the human heart. It's in us all. We, we can make the best things the thing that we are basing our relationship to God on. 
So the question is not if you're self-righteous, but maybe to think about it in these two ways, that the question is, are you an elder brother who needs to be saved? Who has never abandoned his own righteousness? Who has always clung to his good works? Are, Are you an elder brother who needs to be saved? Or are you a Christian who is elder brother-ish and needs to repent? And our churches in, in this culture are full of people who come in and out week after week, carrying their Bible, bringing their family, making sure their kids are, are in the right places, who are elder brothers. who base their relationship to God on their performance before God. So I I just want to pray for you as we finish up today that that the Holy Spirit would would clarify that in you. Like, is God the desire of your heart? When you think of the panoramic picture of your life, is it characterized by a longing for God? Is it characterized by a deep desire for God? See, if not, I think we need to do some serious asking there. See, the elder brother did not want God. He wanted the things that God could give him. The younger son, he could not imagine being anywhere other than in the feast. So Holy Spirit, will you you start to clarify this in us? God, will you bring deep repentance to Christians in the room who are elder brother-ish? And God, for, for our elder brothers in the room who cling to their self-righteousness, who package it up and present it to you as if it means something to you, as if it buys them something from you, God, I pray that this would be the day in their life when they realize none of their righteousness matters. I pray this would be the day that their good deeds and their bad deeds are laid down. I pray that this would be the day that Jesus stops being just a moral guy to follow, to listen to, to do what he says but Jesus would become an electrifying Savior, a satisfying Savior. So God, will you help us in that? I I know that that takes much grace to see our need when we've been living well, to see how desperate we are for grace in the midst of our good behavior. So God, I pray that this would be a day that you press this down. And God, I pray that we would see fruit from this for, for weeks, months, maybe even years to come as as we work through what it means to believe the gospel, that our standing before you is entirely based on what Jesus has done for us. So it is in your great and gracious name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.